Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange Podcast, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. Today's episode is part of our series on doing trade in disruptive times. The sessions were taped on March the 8th, 2022, during the CJAI Annual State of Trade Conference that was held virtually. This podcast series is brought to you by Amazon, the Reisman Chair in International Economic Policy at Carleton University, and UPS Canada. This episode is a panel discussion on e-commerce featuring Mark Agnew, Sarah Goldfeder, Victor Gomez, and moderator Adriana Vega. So to kick off the program today, I want to give a warm welcome to um, uh, my fellow panelists uh, here. I'm very happy to see you, happy to have this uh, important conversation on digital trade, which I know we all care about very much, as you already uh, wisely mentioned, Sarah. And uh, I'd like to welcome um, Mark Agnew, who is Senior Vice President of Policy and Government Relations at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, Sarah Goldfeder, Manager of Government Relations at General Motors, Victor Gomez, Assistant Vice President of Government and Regulatory Affairs at Sunlight Financial. And um, Mark, I'm gonna kick things off with you today. Um, I think looking back at the last couple of years and all the things that we've had to do to adapt to living in this pandemic, and as I said, much longer than we had initially thought, um, the digital element, I think, is the one that's, you know, stands out the most among all the things that we've had to adapt, whether it is work or, um, you know, consuming or individual choices as consumers. We're definitely engaging a lot more virtually. We are buying more things virtually, whether that's products or services, uh, whether it is local or internationally. And um, that kind of collective um, of individual decisions to, to engage more, more digitally has, you know, has impacts on how business is conducted and all this sort of like infrastructure and framework that goes on behind the scenes, whether that is, you know, you buy more online, there's more of your data online. Uh, where does that data go? Um, or, you know, payments infrastructure, like all these things that perhaps are not so evident uh, to the consumer, but they definitely are happening behind the scenes. And, and that evidently has implications for, for policymakers as well. You know, how, how do we deal with this rapid um, acceleration of what maybe was already coming, but now it's just happening a lot faster. And in some cases, it's already here. So, you know, for those of us who maybe have not been watching so closely, um, can you situate us? on where we're at today in terms of that policy framework that I that I was just discussing, you know, what's happening in Canada um, that we may have missed over the last um, couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, well thanks, Adriana. And um, I mean, I should say, you're, it's funny you talk about being together in person. And um, I know when we were having our prep call last week, I mean, we were talking about the the last in-person state of trade conference, which was sort of the, the the final act before we all got locked down. You know, every time someone coughed in their hand, you know, people were, were staring up and cockeyed. So, um, you know, fond fond memories of uh, of uh, of this this conference. And so, hopefully, next year we can do it uh, do it in person. But um, you know, as I was thinking about digital trade over the last two years, you know, in some ways, you know, it's kind of that proverbial, like it's been the best of times, but the worst of times. And so like, what I mean by that is like the best of times in the sense of we've never had more attention on like digital economy issues in the broadest sense of the word. And I think like, you know, for us that are in the public policy world as, you know, digital trade geeks, like that's, that's really exciting, really exhilarating. 
but it's been the worst of times in the sense of progress being like glacially slow on things. And so, um, you know, people have been talking a lot, for instance, about the digital charter. Um, this is something that the previous industry minister started uh, very much, I think, a legacy item uh, that, that he saw. And, you know, the signature bit of legislation coming out of that was an update to Canada's, you know, privacy rules. And I know we're going to talk about that in a bit more detail later, but, um, you know, just to say at the top, over 20 years out of date and long overdue for for an update. But, you know, the legislation just, it seems stuck. We had it tabled in the last parliament, not really going anywhere. It seems in this parliament anytime soon. And so that is sort of, you know, one example. Um, we've also had various digital policy proposals coming out of Heritage Canada, our, our um, cultural you know ministry. Um, you know, are they aligned with all of our USMCA commitments? Maybe yes, maybe no. So that, that's been another, you know, friction point. Um, our government's talked a lot about the DIPA, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement that involves Singapore, New Zealand, and, and Chile. Again, we've been consulting on this. We've been exploring for a little while, seem to be still exploring for a little time yet to come. And so, again, like lots of talk, but, you know, not really that firm, like, let's actually kind of get stuff done. Um one of the areas where we actually have seen progress happening, I think much to the chagrin of people on the industry side, has been around digital services taxation. Um, we had a global multilateral deal that the OECD managed to land last October. Um, certainly, you know, from the Canadian Chamber perspective, we were happy to see that. No one wants to see a patchwork of, you know, tax rules coming up, but one single global rule book. Um, but unfortunately, here in Canada, we're still pressing ahead with a unilateral digital services tax that would have, you know, Canada striking it out on its own, potentially with a retroactive application. And again, I can talk about that in more detail. But, you know, that's an example of where we're trying to all move together in global unison, and we're kind of charting our own path that is going to ultimately make it more complicated for businesses. And, you know, I can kind of talk about other various things like this digital policy task force, for instance, that was in the government's electoral platform, as well as in the industry Canada mandate letter. Uh, is that going to do something? Is it not? Remains to be seen. But the, the, the common theme, I think, through all of this is that there's no digital trade strategy, no coherent approach. And I get how, you know, people outside of the Ottawa bubble kind of roll their eyes when they hear, you know, policy wonks like us talking about strategies. But I think strategies do actually serve a genuinely useful function in that it helps to galvanize what is an otherwise series of disparate silos within the government bureaucracy and within the government machinery and help to give some focus to it. Um, government is complicated, policy making is complicated and, and messy. And I think having a coherent approach, something that has really been missing from our digital discussion over the last number of years, because again, as you've seen from just what I've talked about over the last few minutes, it's just a series of seemingly random things together with no common unifying narrative or, or thread. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mark. Um, and, you know, I was actually trying not to think back to that day two years ago at this very conference. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I'm happy you brought it up because, yes, it was the, the last conference that I personally attended to before COVID. So it will forever exist in our collective memories, I think. Um, thank you for that um, overview of, you know, where we're situated. It's not it's not necessarily um, you know, a great um, picture that you're you're portraying, but it is encouraging, I think, to 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 see that some things, or at least there's an awareness that something needs to happen, right? So, um, Victor, I'm gonna I'm gonna move um, to you right now, and you know, like Mark already kind of painted a picture of where we're at today on the domestic side, and you know, I think he he made that point around, you know, if we chart our own 
path, you know, that can actually pose challenges for businesses that are actually engaging in, in, in trade internationally. Um, so can you, can you tell us a little more from a perspective, you know, what is the rest of the world doing? What's happening out there um, that we need to take into consideration in terms of policy making? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Adriana. And uh, thanks to the Canadian uh, Global Affairs Institute for this opportunity uh, to talk about this issue. Um, love talking about digital trade, obviously. Um, I'm, I think I'm the only one on this panel currently that is not in Ottawa, as far as I know. Um, but nevertheless, I do share all of your inherent wonkishness. So um, happy to be here. Um, uh, so Life, Sun Life, as most of you will know, is, a, is a, one of the largest life and health insurers in Canada. Uh, we're also um, a major asset manager with 1.3 trillion in assets under management. Um, and I guess the final thing I'd, I'd say is maybe not as many people realize that we're not just in Canada and the United States, but we're also in several markets in Asia, including China and India, the big ones, um, as well as uh, an infrastructure investor around the globe, uh, quite literally. So, um, so we have uh, this uh, view uh, that, that is global, as Adriana said. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like all companies, we were digitizing before the pandemic, of course, because that's the way the world's going. But we also uh, obviously ramped this up with COVID, um, you know, providing digital services to our clients who were at home, stuck at home, you know, digital wealth management advice, um, other sort of digital health services and things like that. And that, that'll continue, of course. Um, and so we see this um, uh, through a digital lens, but also globally. And uh, uh, I guess I would say uh, in terms of global trends, there's like basically two contradictory trends that, that we're seeing in the, in the world of data, which is fundamental to e-commerce, right? with e-commerce, what are you doing? You're sending data around, right? Um, and so uh, one is a sort of a negative trend where there's an inward inward lookingness that uh, for that governments are, are, are undertaking to, to like localize data, to create data governance rules nationally. And we're seeing that proliferate, right? There were hundreds of data measures, more than 300, I think, last year. Um, and uh, a lot of that is to do with attempts by governments to localize data, to keep it within their borders. Um, for various reasons that I'll get into. A, con a contradictory trend though, on the optimistic side from our vantage point, is an attempt by countries to, uh, to, to come together and create global rules around data to ensure those data flows can, can happen between countries in a secure way. So um, dive into it a little bit. Um, uh, why are policymakers uh, moving so quick and so in aggressively on data governance nationally? Well, one of the some of the concerns that they raise are, you know, legitimate concerns around privacy and security of their citizens' data, right? And uh, and then access to data, the related thing of access to data by national regulators. So the notion is that if you have the if you force companies to hold data on servers within the country, uh, it's somehow more more secure um, because it's there, physically there. Sort of a you know a, a weird way of thinking about data, almost like money in a vault somewhere. Uh, which, you know, as we know, is not the case. Um, another, you know, sometimes unspoken uh, policy aim with these kinds of national localization rules for data are um, an, an attempt to actually to create an, an indigenous sort of a national data economy for, for uh, around data storage and that, uh, you know, again, just age old protectionism as the sort of trade policy wants on this uh, call will we'll, we'll recognize. Um, so, but why are the, so I think aside from being protectionist, we think that these are, these are sort of policy approaches are a misunderstanding of data uh, and how it works in a modern economy. Um, first of all, on the security side, you know, I don't need to tell anybody on this call that cybersecurity is a global problem, right? Hackers aren't just sitting there trying to hack, uh, 
you know, sitting in lower town hacking things in center town. They're, they're actually, you know, operating globally and the networks are sophisticated, increasingly sophisticated. The, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say there's a cyber war going on where individ individual groups, non-state actors and state actors are, are engaging in cybersecurity attacks. Uh, we see millions of them on a weekly basis. Um, and so uh, the notion that you can concentrate your data in within the borders of your country you know, and that it will be safer is actually counterintuitive because it's uh, it's concentration risk, right? Whereas uh, cloud, the cloud service providers, public cloud that increasingly companies like ours are using, but also SMEs are using because it's rather affordable to, to store your data that way, uh, uses scale, right? Across multiple countries, cloud service providers tend to be large global firms and they, and they use, for example, failover redundancy storage, right? So if, you're, if there's an attack in one geography, they can move it to another geography. Um, and 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 so protect this this the stability and security of the network that way. So and you know also because they're global, they have access to global talent, right? And we're always talking about the lot. You know, digital talent is scarce. It's hard to find people that uh, do AI, that do machine learning, that understand data. Um, and these firms have access to them, and they can provide access to a firm that even like not to a firm like ours, but also to a, an SME in a country, and gain access to state of the art uh, cybersecurity and cloud-based storage services, right? Um, and I don't need to tell this group that trade barriers um, reduce economic uh, growth, right? Like, so the OECD has done tons of studies that digital connectivity increases trade and, uh, and, and barriers like the ones I'm talking about decrease trade and therefore growth. Um, luckily, and I'll just be quick with this, Mark uh, um, alluded to some of this, uh, there's a counter move. Uh, and, and I think some of this nervousness that you're seeing governments engage in is because there aren't those global rules. Like we don't have global rules uh, for trade and e-commerce and for data flows. So there's attempts for the, you know, the joint um, statement initiative at the WTO is working on e-commerce, moving slowly. Hopefully it'll pick up, Canada's part of that. Um, hopefully this year they'll be able to make some good progress. The DEPA that Mark referenced came out of um, the Digital economy, economy Partnership Agreement between Singapore, New Zealand and Chile. So these are all pieces, right? And we know that USMCA, known as Kuzma uh, here, uh, it also has a chapter in that CPTPP does as well. So these are different pieces coming together, hopefully, towards an open rules-based global uh, sort of framework for data trade, for trade, trade and data flows around the economy. So I'll end on that optimistic note and uh, pass it back to Adrian. Thanks. So, so Victor, I'm glad that you mentioned the USMCA because as you were saying, you know, the sense of urgency around, you know, coming up with rules is because there are no global rules. Um, the, the thing that kind of popped up in my mind was the whole USMCA, right? There's no global rules, but there's some attempts at building or at least beginning to create that kind of set of rules. And, you know, Sarah, you and I were, were quite involved in the whole USMCA, uh, what feels like an age ago. Um, and those negotiations, that kind of conversation, and before that, the CPTPP or the TPP even. So, um, you know, from your perspective, you know, you 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 work in a quintessential North American manufacturing industry. You have a great line of sight into what the USMCA does, what it does differently from NAFTA. Um, so, can you tell us more about, you know, in this particular space, um, how how far does USMCA go? Um, does it, you know, is it actually doing the job that it's meant to do, you know, to enable these value chains from a digital perspective? And um, and do you think there's more that needs to be done in that space? Thank you, Adriana. I, I think, you know, one of the things we have to 
agreements is that the trade agreements are built to facilitate trade, to enable trade. They don't actually do trade, right? Companies trade. Um, and so, you know, to answer the question, has the USMCA done enough on digital trade? I think I kind of go back to this kind of laundry list of different pieces, as Vector noted, of policy that, that any company has to navigate, um, even within just the North American sector. And, and so it, it, it becomes something that you need multiple experts um, kind of charting your course and, and you know, um, who have that capacity, that's not a problem. You just, you know, you build another division, you build another, you know, suite of, of cubicles and put a bunch of people in there that can kind of chart your way through all of these pieces and policies uh, and make sense of what it is that you need to do and what you can leverage where. And so the USMCA does what it does well for the North American context, but the reality is that most companies that, that, uh, that, that use the digital trade provisions within USMCA are looking globally. Um, and so while it does do some things to, you know, to kind of facilitate overall trade, I, I, I think in the end, it's on the individual countries themselves to actually uh, follow through and enable some of this. And so um, I, I think so in that way, is it a good move? It's a great move. It's a great move because it, it provided a template, right? So TPP um, in the drafting of that agreement um, before, uh, before the, the redrafting of NAFTA was really a leader in that. And the entire intent behind TPP was to give a bit of a blueprint to the world on how to do a modern trade agreement. And so the fact that the US administration at least held on to that notion when they decided to renegotiate NAFTA and create the USMCA is really valuable because it provides um, some protection against data localization, for example, um, and it provides you know, some um, enabling features that facilitate the trade of data. But for so long, all of our thought on trade, like we divided trade and, and we, we quantify trade in commodities and manufactured goods and, in, um, and less so in services and definitely not in data. So we don't actually have a good notion of how much data goes is globally traded at any moment in time. And I think that that is one of the areas that um, USMCA doesn't do anything for that. And it also you know, provides somewhat of, a, of an idea on how to measure services. But until we really understand what the global quantification of trade and data actually looks like, I, I think it's going to be hard to gain traction in the individual governments. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, it's, um, it's important more than ever now, because as we see in the auto sector transition, for example, auto OEMs are no longer just, they're also about, again, those data flows. And, and so all of the big OEMs have, have looked to identify how do we quantify and create revenue streams out of these data flows that we're creating out of our vehicles. And, and beyond that, creating new divisions within companies that are focused on um, on digital trade, essentially. And so it's when you think now about digital trade, it's not just about digital services, financial services, um, kind of those intangibles that, you know, that, that we talk about sometimes in the Canadian economy. 
it's going back to basics. It is um, part of agriculture. It is part of commodity trading. It is part of manufacturing. And so it's harder and harder to carve it out as a distinct area of trade. Um, and while that may be beneficial in the long run, it also makes it more complicated. That's very interesting, Sarah. And I feel like what I'm hearing just based on, you know, how this conversation is moving along, um, it just really underscores the need for cooperation, right? Because there's an element of global, you know, creating global standards, but driven by individual governments, you know, based on what their industries are asking them to do. And that ultimately, before we end up with the patchwork of regulations, like we tend to do, um, you know, that just really calls for, for even stronger cooperation with a bit of a sense of urgency. Um, so on that note, Mark, um, you know, thinking about cooperation, thinking about talking to our peers in different industries with different, in the, you know, industries in different countries, um, what are some of the initiatives, you know, whether from government or business that you think might help move the needle on some of these issues? What are, what, you know, what, what's the low hanging fruit out there? Yeah, so there's a couple of different items, and um, the first one that comes to mind is actually picking up on something that Sarah said around the the coordination and the the collaboration piece. Um, we have a pretty weak muscle reflex when it comes to FedProv coordination at the the best of times in this country, as we all know. Uh, let alone in the like digital economy space. And so, um, if we look at what's been happening, for instance, with like Quebec and Bill 64, you know, Ontario was kind of doing its little thing on privacy for a bit last year. Um, there is no, and I used the word strategy earlier, so I'm going to use the word table. There's no real like table that seems to have the like federal data people and the provincial data people, like from a policy standpoint, not a regulator standpoint, but the policy folks thinking about like, how do we coordinate amongst 13 subnationals in one federal jurisdiction to have like a co coherent domestic approach uh, to this. And I should say, by the way, it needs to be federally led. And the reason why I think that is so important in this case is because there are such big international implications that if you have provinces all kind of flailing around doing their own thing without the feds actually taking a real leadership role, we're not gonna be able to do the international piece, um, certainly. Um, and that sort of builds on what I think is the, the second thing is the international you know, piece and how do we leverage that global coherence. Um, there's a risk with reinventing the wheel and thinking that we need to like reconcoct digital trade chapters. But I mean, anyone who spent even like a fraction of time looking at trade agreements, if you were to put like all these things side by side, they look eerily similar. Um, so much so that like University Pross would think there was some like plagiarism ring, like ring going on. Um, but that's kind of the whole point in, tr in like trade policy, like everything builds on what came before like very intentionally and so to me you have the cptpp um it has a built-in expansion mechanism with also like a built-in mandate to expand and i think if you're talking about the regional world that victor's company operates in um you should be like leveraging that as a tool to enforce domestic reforms on countries to get them to modernize their data rules to a standard that makes it sensible for business to operate and to have a business friendly uh environment um the other piece of it too we didn't talk about cybersecurity, but if i can bring in the sort of like defense angle to this and around on cybersecurity, um pspc or for those of you who don't know uh, public services and procurement canada um 
they're looking at right now cybersecurity certification models. And so the U.S. has an approach called CMMC. Um, and that's a good example of where like Canada should be looking to align with the U.S. on cybersecurity standards. There's no reason why we should try to strike it out on our own. And this is something, for example, that the chamber has been strongly advocating for um, and other industry associations like CADSI particularly, um, who've been really like, you know, leading the charge on this. And so I think this is an example of where you know, we should look to international standards and as opposed to a bespoke uh, domestic approach. Um, the, the last thing that I'll say is more about the business community action. Um, GM, Sun Life, Scotiabank, all members of the chamber. Um, you know, I love the three of you guys. But as much as we have, you know, a broad-based multi-sector membership, not every company is active in the digital space, I can say. And so this is an example of where um, there's a lot of scope for the Canadian business community to, to step up and governments are going to react to what stakeholders tell them. And so I think, you know, the private sector needs to also really amp up its voice to be able to try to exert more influence on how the government um, makes its decisions on uh, the digital economy. Because I think in the absence of a strong stakeholder community voice, we're going to see these, you know, disparate and dysfunctional elements continuing to pop up and emerge. Thank you, Mark. Um, and I'm sure that for any trade negotiators um, in the audience or any trade practitioners, I'm sure that they were uh, quite happy to hear you talk about leveraging trade agreements to um, um, enforcing domestic regulations. So um, I, I hear that. Um, and that's great that you mentioned that. Um, but, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about you consume more online, you're engaging more online. You know, this means there's more of your data out there. There's more of you know, all this information kind of moving you know, across borders, moving even across provinces. Um, and so I feel like a big piece of this puzzle is the privacy angle, right? And, and, you know, unlike other things, privacy is not necessarily something you can write into the trade agreement. So we start entering areas, you know, what, like what you were mentioning, Sarah, what the trade agreement does and what it doesn't. So, uh, Victor, I know that you, you have some experience in this space. Um, can you... Can you walk us through, you know, the privacy sort of framework? Um, how does the how does this framework, you know, domestically, how is that impacting businesses uh, engaging in international trade, and uh, where do you think this is headed, and or, or where should it go from here? Thanks. Um, yeah, sometimes where it's headed and what we're hoping for is not exactly aligned, but <laughs> but um, but yeah, privacy. So I mean, with any con conversation about e-commerce and data, has to, it has to deal with privacy, right? Because and and it's often we. Um, we, we see privacy opposed to innovation, like it's a trade-off, like you can't innovate with the data uh, only up to a certain point because you have to balance the privacy aspect. Like we, I don't see it like that. I think, I think um, like for, us, for a company like ours, we're not, we don't sell goods, we don't make stuff and, 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 and sell physical objects. We, we uh, provide services, right? Financial services uh, and, and other kinds of services related to that. Um, and uh, so we're in the business of trust, right? People give us their sensitive data, financial data, healthcare data, actually based on their claims, and they expect us to protect it. Uh, we use that data to innovate because we look at the, at the trends in that data across clients and, and provide them with new products that they might need uh, or they might be wanting. Um, and in order to innovate, we need to protect that data because they'd have to trust us. Like we lose that data, in a massive privacy breach, we're dead, right? Like that, our whole reputation is based on that. So um, coupled with uh, those standards that we have to keep for our own reputational reasons, um, uh, we also, you know, need you know rely on frameworks, uh, go like governance frameworks, like in Canada. So Canada's privacy law, as Mark started talking about, um, known as PIPIDA, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, a mouthful, 
um, is uh, 20 years old. It served its purpose. It's principles-based. We liked it. Uh, we thought we think it was a, a, a high standard privacy framework. It still is. Problem is, it was developed 20 years ago, right? There weren't even smartphones around when this was developed, right? So the government is, has, over the last couple of years, worked on a new legislation to modernize the, the privacy frameworks based on the digital charter that, uh, that Mark was mentioning earlier. Um, and they, they tabled this legislation, I, I believe, in late 2020. Um, then we had an election, so it died on the order paper, um, unfortunately. And, uh, and we're waiting and encouraging the government to table it again. The Minister Champagne said that it's a priority. So we're hoping that this can be tabled and, and passed because because as we're seeing, we're seeing, as Mark said, we're seeing um, not only, uh, uh, well, there's the provincial aspect, but there's also the EU, right? The European Union, so that's the trade aspect, right? We need to, we need to show that we're equivalent in, in, in our privacy protections to the EU, otherwise that could be disruptive um, as the US has experienced. Uh, and so, but then also provinces, right? Like we have provinces that have had privacy frameworks like Quebec modernizing theirs, but then Ontario steps in and never had this kind of framework. So like, this is a classic Canada problem, right? Like, you, you know, multiple securities regulators were the only country that has that, um, you know, provincial trade barriers. Like we go around promoting free trade, but we have barriers between our provinces. And now like, let's please just not do it with data, right? Like, uh, you know, let's just have a consistent framework for data. The, uh, all the, any people in Ottawa who work for the government know that they promote data, uh, free data flows globally. We like that, we're supportive of Ottawa doing that. So let's get it done in our own backyard also and not require companies that to comply with 13 different privacy frameworks and, uh, that's my hope for the future thank you well, well i just want to congratulate uh victor for, for actually filling out pipita uh very successfully i feel like that's in your record so um so that's great um I, i'm glad you've mentioned the whole canada you know the, the classic canada problem because you know the sort of like regulatory fragmentation you know um, you, we have an internal trade agreement, you know, like that, th this is clearly something that we need to work with, you know, in terms of um, working with regulation across provinces, even to do business within Canada, let alone to do business outside Canada. And, um, and you yourself, Sarah, also mentioned earlier, you know, businesses are not operating in a silo where, they're, you know, they're just going to do business within the confines of that trade agreement. They're thinking globally. So from a competitiveness angle, and I feel like we've been talking about this competitiveness piece for a very long time in the context of trade, right? Um, what can we learn from this sort of more traditional approach um, to, to policymaking, you know, in, in the sense of, you know, whether it is trade policy, um, or, or even, you know, it sounds more like regulatory, you know, alignment across provinces and international. Uh, what do you think we can do better? Or, or, you know, what can we be doing differently when it comes to not repeating uh, some of the mistakes that we've done in the past um, in, in the field of, um, of um, regulation in this space? And I know I'm giving you the hardest question, but do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> It's, it's a bit like a game of whack-a-mole, right? So, you know, not only do we have the, the you know, the 14 jurisdictions in Canada, um, the federal and the provinces and the territories, but then you have the United States and then you have 50 jurisdictions within the United States that are all regulating separately. So until we have a better North American concept on privacy, I think, um, you know, we're going to be facing a lot of challenges. And you know, at the moment, there are not just inside Canada, but again, as we're all trading, um, especially within the North um, the context, but also globally, we are constantly engaging in various countries to ensure that, that, that uh, privacy regimes are aligned and are not um, overly restrictive. And at the end of the day, 
when jurisdictions create these unique um, privacy frameworks that um, in some cases, I, I think they're, it's a constituency play, right? We're gonna have the best privacy framework world. Um, hello, Massachusetts. It, it, in the end of the day, it, it harms the consumers. It harms the people who want the product, who need access to the product, who want to be mobile. Um, it, there is a, a great piece, I think it was in Wired not too long ago about a couple who wanted to buy a certain brand of car, uh, happened to live in Massachusetts. They were really excited to get a couple of key safety um, safety um, options on the vehicle, which because they bought the vehicle in Massachusetts and lived in Massachusetts were turned off. Now, if they would have lived um, like literally 10 miles down the road in Rhode Island, they would have had access to these things. And so that's the fragmentization of the consumer environment based on the fragment of jurisdictional approaches on privacy is a really dangerous thing, I think. Um, and so we really need to get behind the federal government coming forward with a federal privacy framework because unless they do that, we're going to have all of the provinces filling the gap, right? Um, filling the vacuum because I, I think it is, a valuable concept that consumers want to have some clear understanding of what information they share, how they share it, where it's going, and how is it protected. And I, and I don't think that's an unreasonable thing for consumers to ask, but when you have legislators who in many cases, in most cases, are not subject matter experts, um, drafting legislation that is designed to take, you know, to kind of take care of a specific constituency's need, you come up with, again, this patchwork of regulatory environments that makes it very hard for companies to operate and even more importantly, harder for consumers to navigate. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's uh, somewhere north of 150 people on this, on this call today. And, uh, you know, I, I would challenge that the notion that all of us fully understand what's happening to our data in every jurisdiction that we do business. And, and so I, I think that that's something that um, kind of moving forward, governments need to do a better job of alignment on it. I think when you, and when you compare what's happened in digital trade to what's happened in manufactured trade and look to what we've done manufacturing as kind of a guide. What we haven't done particularly well is, is we haven't created a framework that is um, really a notion of free trade. There is a very specific notion of managed trade within manufacturing and with agricultural commodities. And I, and I think that, that, you know, as as Canada has approached this at times, it's ended up shooting itself in the foot in order to create an environment where things have a stamp of, of Canadian regulatory alignment. In some ways it's a competitive advantage, um, you know, and especially as we move into kind of a new era of energy, that stamp of regulatory excellence is a competitive advantage, but in other ways, uh, we have to be careful that we ensure that we're harmonizing and negotiating with others as we figure out our own domestic policies. It's not the worst thing in the world to cooperate with the United States when you're trying to come up with a continental digital privacy policy, for example. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, we have a couple of minutes left um, before wrapping up. And I 
there's a question from the audience that I think we've kind of already, in a sense, answered, but maybe not addressed directly. And I just wanted to put it out there, see if there's any any of you who want to comment on it. And it's this this dynamic between, you know, can Canada truly be a rule maker or more of a rule follower um, when it comes to the rules that, that govern digital trade? Um, does anyone have a thought on on that? Do you want to comment on that? I mean, I you know, I've been I've worked in those in those um, you know policy tables and and talking to um, you know I don't know stakeholders from different countries and like you said, Mark, you know it's a very complex process. It's it's messy. Um, there's you know political windows. There's different you know um, things that get policymakers' attentions and and and, and governments' attention. So um, you know, is this really about setting the rules uh, or following the rules or more about what we said um, cooperation? Um, I don't know if anybody has a thought in that space. Yeah, so maybe I'll take a first go at it. Um, part of it is the the lack of us, the lack of sorry, our ability to internally have a coherent approach to this, whether it's within the federal government or federally uh, and provincially. Um, one of the things too that I would just note is that you know governments, and this isn't meant to be like a, a comment to any one government, like it's, it's, it's applicable to any government at any country at any level, which is like the senior political leadership, especially over the last two years has been in issues management mode, whether it's like the pandemic or supply chains or like Russia, Ukraine. And so like the ability for governments and the bandwidth to think about stuff that isn't in issues management um, is quite limited, I think. And so like data and privacy protection, it's kind of that classic, like, it's important, but it's not urgent, or at least it's perceived as important, but not urgent. Um, it's probably the better way to phrase it. And so I think that has been a really limiting factor in like driving forward the action that we, we need to see. I'm not trying to say that like, you know, I endorse that, you know, position, but I think that it would be my sort of, you know, pragmatic assessment of uh, the situation. Yeah, yeah, I agree with, I think I'd agree with that. And I think, I think that, um, as much as Canada has, uh, like people on this call know, some a, a lot of good expertise and talent around trade negotiating, trade negotiations, and trade negotiators, um, some of that has been hampered by the pandemic. As meetings have been taking care, taking place virtually. But what, I think really at this stage, we are we are a taker in this field, not a make, not a maker, rule maker. Uh, but I think it's urgent, therefore, to to get involved proactively with some of these initiatives happening, like the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. The way that we can start to um, become more of partaking in the rulemaking process is to join proactively join those groups and I think that it's fair to say that it's been slow right the move towards joining something like the DEPA or other regional initiatives whereas countries um, that in many ways are comparable to ours New Zealand Chile uh, Singapore sort of stands out as different but they, they're sort of diving right into it right and I think that's an opportunity for a country a smaller open economy like Canada to 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 have a have an influence on the world right and, and this is an area that deserves more attention because it is really the future i mean we're already living it now so um i think that that's the first step before we can talk about rule making is, is getting involved being at the table literally i, I want to just add to something that, that mark said because i think it's really important when when we jump as a government and as policymakers, and we jump from crisis to crisis and we ignore issues until they become urgent we tend to make really bad policy decisions and i think privacy is one of those areas um, trademark protections and copyright is another where we often don't focus on it strategically 
you know, using the subject matter expertise that exists within the different government departments until, um, you know, a, a lawmaker comes up with a piece of legislation independently drafted to address certain issues. And that may well not actually solve the problem and may in fact create others. And so I, I think it's really important that we do take a strategic approach to things like digital privacy, trademark considerations, copyright planning, intellectual property, all of these things, although they might not feel urgent, um, unless we have a strategic vision and we create a policy environment that protects us strategically, we're going we're gonna to end up playing a game of legislative whack-a-mole that, that you know, will rival the one that we're playing in the United States. That's great. Um, and, you know, I think, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it a little bit here, but I do have another question from the audience that I think this group is, um, is well-placed to, to answer. Um, and it is, you know, they're asking specifically about one country. They're asking, uh, can we learn lessons from, from this one country? But I think that actually can't be expanded more broadly. Um, have you guys seen any good examples or is there any lessons that we can learn from other countries in terms of what they are doing? Um, and can we adopt some of those as a, as a best practice here in terms of developing this, um, this rules framework? I think that you know the EU has served as a good guiding light on a number of different issues because they have thought strategically. So not just on digital privacy, but also within, for example, the battery raw materials supply chain. They have thought strategically well before any of the North American jurisdictions really started to come together with any strategic um, vision of what they wanted to do. So I think that there is, there are examples, um, and they might not fit perfectly. Um, it might be something that we have to adjust, but. And overall, the, the at least one of the things that I think having kind of the separate governance of the EU provides for the European countries is this level of strategic, it's, it's a space for strategic thinking that is not reactive the way that the governments themselves necessarily sometimes end up being. That's great. Um, well, we don't have any other questions um, from, for the moment. Um, so I'm going to close it up um, on this note. I think that what I heard from, from the panelists today is obviously, um, you know, as in policy making, there's always this huge mountain of things that need to be addressed, um, but little by little, right? And like you, you, you tackle kind of the most urgent um, um, issues, but at the same time, you have to continue working towards, you know, that kind of distant, urgent issue. Um, that we can all kind of come to the table and, um, and, and discuss today. So uh, thank you to all of you for all the work that you do in the space. I know that, uh, you know, we talk frequently with Mark, uh, we engage with government. So, um, you know, just um, let's keep that up. Um, I think that government wants to hear from us. And, um, and thanks. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Sarah, for your time today, for sharing your thoughts. Um, I think that this leaves us with a lot of uh, um, uh, things, you know, to reflect on. And um, I will hand it over to Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode, one in a series taped at the annual State of Canadian Trade Conference, hosted virtually in March 2022. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It really helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. 
Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.